we had a great event for our men this past weekend. Uh, I think it was our fifth or sixth man camp, and the topic was work. We talked about a theology of work. What does the Bible teach us about work? Uh, I think a lot of men, a lot of members in the church, a lot of Christians struggle with connecting their work to worship. And so I've decided to continue with that theme this morning. And I'm going to look at a passage that we didn't look at over the weekend. We're going to be in Ephesians 6, as Paul read, and we're going to talk about the gospel in the workplace. Should the gospel affect how we work? What do you think, church? Yes? Hey, just a few things about man camp. Uh, Lewis had his brother David fly out. So I, I was so encouraged by all the men who came. You know, we had a, a packed fellowship hall, but also all the guests that came. We had a lot of new people show up, and uh, one brother uh, brought his biological brother from Florida just for the weekend, just to be a part of man camp. And I really enjoyed getting to know David and was encouraged by him. So it was just a sweet time. Uh, yeah, thankful for man camp. And again, thankful for this topic, work, the gospel in the workplace. Um, the big idea is the gospel transforms the way we work. Let me tell you about my first job, my first big boy job. So, you know, I was taught early on, you know, pop, you know, as soon as you can work, you need to work. You need to work hard. And, uh, you know, my stepdad, my pop, always had a great work ethic, so I saw that lived out in the home, and uh, I wanted to work. And so I got hired on when I was 16 at Duran Pools doing pool construction, building pools in East Texas. And, you know, it was 50, 60-hour weeks um, in the hot sun. I loved it. Let me tell you about my first day, though. My first day, I arrive, I get there a little early, and uh, they put me with one of the guys in a work truck, and they said, we're going out to, to the lake, to Sam Rayburn, and there's a, a lake house that has a pool. We need to drain it, cut out the liner, and put in a new liner. And I said, that sounds great. Let's do that. And so we get out there. Well, they didn't tell me this pool had been neglected for probably three or four years. It, it looked like a swamp, and it smelled worse. And we saw snakes. And I thought, oh, this will be fun. And so we begin to drain the pool, and as soon as the shallow end is drained, now there's just water in the deep end, he says, climb in. I said, okay, Randy. That was his name, Randy. I said, okay, Randy. And so I get in, and I uh, get a box cutter, and I begin to cut the old liner out. And there's this wooden deck that goes around the pool, and I'm just seeing these m massive spiders, and again, there's a big snake, and I'm like, okay, Lord, this is where you have me. And he said, hey, be careful because the liner's really slippery. And it was. It had that green film all over it. And I'm getting close. I'm, I'm getting close to where the pool goes down to the deep end. It's still full of water. And I'm cutting and I'm cutting and I fall. And I go into the water. And I walked on water. Not that fast, but I got out so quick and I was covered in green. And so he's laughing. Randy's laughing. I'm not laughing. Um, I'm thinking about that big snake we saw in the water. And uh, I'm thinking about how many shots I'm going to have to get after this. But I get out, they spray me off, and uh, I go back to work. My first day was a 17-hour day, and I loved it. I loved it because I knew these guys that I was working with, they weren't believers. That was obvious from day one. I was a believer. And so I thought, this is going to be a great mission field. And I loved working with my hands. I wanted to work hard. I, I soon earned the respect of my boss. And, you know, over the next two summers, that's where I worked and I got to share the gospel with all those employers, all my coworkers, and I loved it. I was so thankful. The gospel transformed the way I saw work. Again, long days in a hot sun, but I couldn't be any happier. <laughs> well, you heard the text read, and, and I'm, 
I'm sure many of you are puzzled, confused. What's this language of masters and slaves? This is a difficult passage to read and teach because I think many Christians today struggle with seeing the relevance of this passage for the church today, especially in our Western context. Maybe you're thinking, you know, slavery has thankfully been abolished. Let's, let's move on. Chris, why not talk about the armor of God, which is also in Ephesians 6, but not so fast. This is God's word. Amen. This is God's word that Pastor Paul read. Therefore, it is relevant to all of God's people at all times. You know, this is going to be helpful moving on when reading and interpreting and applying scripture, it's important that we find comparable situations, especially when it comes to application. Misapplication of the biblical text often results from a failure to find a comparable situation in which to apply God's truth. For example, I think the greatest example, the most abused example is Philippians 4.13, right? You see the wrestler wearing Philippians 4.13. You hear the freshman boy trying to ask out the prom queen, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You think of, and I've used this example before, we think about the young guy who, again, hey, listen, there's a test next week, it's a third of your grade, he forgets over the weekend, he shows up on Monday, and the teacher reminds him, hey, that, that test is today, he's paralyzed with fear, but then he remembers, hey, Philippians 4.13, it's not going to help you there, buddy. That's not what's going on in Philippians 4. That's not, those are not good comparable situations. I think a good comparable situation would be maybe a private in the military. You've got a young man who's a devout follower of Jesus, and he finds himself surrounded by other men who are lewd and crude and living for the world, and they find out he's a Christian, and they begin to make fun of him and even physically abuse him. And the reason I share that story is because when I lived in Washington, the church that I served at before we planted there was a Navy base right down the road. And so a lot of the guys that came to our church were Navy guys. And I'd get them for, you know, short stints. I'd disciple a lot of these guys. And that was some of their stories. They'd get made fun of for being Christians. And I think Philippians 4.13, again, Paul's in prison. He's writing. He's being persecuted. But he knows, I can do all things. I can persevere in the faith because of Jesus. Amen? That's a better comparable situation. So what is the comparable situation for Ephesians 6? Five to nine. The closest comparable situation for today is the workplace or any other socioeconomic authority structure where you have authority being exercised between two parties. One party is in the position of authority and the other party is subject to that authority. And you know, the church has historically, the church has historically applied this passage to the workplace and the relationship between bosses or employers and their employees. Before we get into it, and I do want to talk about the original historical context, because again, I think I probably lost some of you guys when the text was read. When you heard slavery and masters, you're like, whoa, 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 this can't be. So I want to talk about that quickly, but not yet. First, I want to talk about two things at the outset. Number one, and if you were here this weekend, I repeated this multiple times, work is good. Amen? Work is good. So we, we have to start with this biblical presupposition because the Bible assumes this. It, it establishes it in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis that work is good. How do we know that? Well, what does God do? He works, and he makes us to do what? To work as his image bearer. So 
Work was part of God's original vocation, job for Adam and Eve in the garden. It was part of God's good plan for his people. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Many mistakenly associate work itself with the fall, right? Work's a curse. And I mentioned in Greek mythology, you have Pandora's box. Don't open the box. But when it's opened, all these curses come out. And in Greek thought, guess what one of the curses was? Work. (laughs) But work is not a curse. But work has been affected by sin. It's true. Our work is harder. It's more difficult. We struggle. People lie and cheat. Bosses don't always treat their employees right. The ground resists us at times. I love to garden, but all those thorns. But again, work is not the curse, but rather it becomes a struggle as a result of sin. Work is related to mankind being made in the image of God. God worked, and God made us in His image to work. We are, and this is a privilege, we are to reflect God, the God who made us, the creator of the universe, we are to reflect Him in our work. Our work is to be a reminder that we are indeed made in the image of God. Our creativity in our work is to bear witness to the Creator. When we oversee, when we build, when we design, when we create, we get. Everybody say, we get. We get to reflect our Lord. What a privilege. So we were made to work, and our work was and is intended to glorify God. Whether you're a police officer, a teacher, a business owner, whatever you do, a surgeon, do your work as unto the Lord. And when you do that, he gets the honor and the glory. How often do we associate our work with the glory of God? Again, I I think too many Christians, even Christians, view work as a necessary evil rather than a means or opportunity to glorify God. And we're going to come back to this. What we're going to see in a little bit is that the gospel redeems our work. The gospel transforms the way we do our work. Our work as Christians is infused with gospel-proclaiming potential. Now, here's the second thing I want to talk about. Slavery. Slavery, because again, that, that is the original context. Masters and slaves. But again, these were Christian masters and Christian slaves that worship together in the same house churches. What is Paul saying about this? And if I lost you when this was read, just come back, pay attention. Let me explain. Slavery in the first century is not analogous to slavery in early America. It's not the same. Uh, A couple of things here. Tony Merida, he, he writes a lot on this actually. He says, the situation that Paul addressed was not like slavery in American history. It was complex. It was massive in scope. American slavery was primarily racial and lifelong. In Paul's day, it was not racial, and oftentimes it wasn't lifelong. There were some similarities, but it was different. Did you know that one-third, over one-third of the population of Rome was slaves? That's a lot of people were slaves. But there are some differences. And let's talk about the differences between slavery then and there and slavery in American history. Number one, these are the differences between slavery in early American history and Roman-era slavery, which was, again, the context that Paul was writing in. One, racial factors played no role. It wasn't about race or skin color or ethnicity. 
Number two, many slaves could reasonably expect to be emancipated. They could be freed during their lifetime, and many were. Three, many slaves worked in a variety of specialized and responsible positions. Number four, many slaves received education and training and specialized skills. And then lastly, freed slaves often became Roman citizens and developed a client relationship to their former masters. This is not to say <coughs> that slavery in the ancient world was far better. It was still what? It was still slavery. And Paul at no point, Paul at no point condones slavery, but he simply provides believers with instruction in how they're to live gospel-centered lives within this prevalent socioeconomic system. The gospel, and there's a great book called Philemon. I'd encourage you to read it. The gospel transformed the cultural norms surrounding slavery. Again, Paul's teaching greatly challenged the status quo surrounding slavery in his day. And if you want to go to Philemon, you can read verse 16. Where exploitation and abuse were prevalent, Paul called for Christian masters to stop their threatening and instead to put the gospel on display in their treatment toward their slaves. And this would be revolutionary. It really would. Slavery could not continue with the teaching of the gospel, and it wouldn't. Now, at the end of this section, this is important. So, if you're familiar with Ephesians, the first half, chapters 1, 2, and 3, is the gospel. Paul takes three chapters to unpack the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Amen? I mean, three chapters. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, because it's six chapters long, the second half of the book, he shows us how we're to live as Christians because of the gospel. How should we live as husbands and wives, as fathers and children, and as household slaves and masters? How is the gospel called to transform all of these domains? And so at the end of his section on the household, because again, he's already talked about marriage, he's talked about parenting, and now he talks about, we'll call it the workplace. Paul addresses household slavery, and more specifically, he addresses spirit-filled slaves, Christians, and spirit-filled masters who are a part of God's church in Ephesus. Now, according to our passage, two things here, and then we're going to talk about the workplace. According to our text, spirit-filled slaves were to serve their masters as they served Christ and for his glory. And according to our passage, spirit-filled masters were to serve their slaves as they served Christ and for his glory. And this is really good. Paul reminds masters that they, along with slaves, share a greater master. Who's that? Who's the greater master that both the slaves and the masters have? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And this new master, listen, this new master and their allegiance to him was to function as the primary motivator for their new attitudes and behaviors. All right, let's come back to our primary aim today, which is to apply Ephesians 6, 5 to 9, to the workplace. This is the comparable situation and will be our focus this morning. <coughs> Two things, sorry. <coughs> Man, I've had this cough for like a week and a half now, and it'll go away, and it just comes back, and he's like, just get it out. I'm like, I'm trying, I'm trying. So if I cough, lo siento, I'm sorry. Two big questions. <laughs> how should spirit-filled employees, 
How should Christian workers relate to their employers, their bosses, in response to the gospel? That's the first question. The second question, and we're going to end with this, how should spirit-filled employers, Christian bosses, relate to their employees in response to the gospel? Now, as followers of Jesus, how should the gospel, or should it? Of course it should. How should the gospel affect the way we view work and do work and relate to those in authority over us in the workplace? For those who are in positions of authority, this could be a boss or a manager, how should the gospel affect the way you relate to those under your authority? These are important questions, amen? I mean, we don't say, okay, God, you can have my home, my marriage, my children, but I'm going to do work the way I want to do work, hands off. No, we, we bring our lives as Christians under the authority of God's word, amen? And what your word says, Lord, about the workplace, we're going to submit to. And I pray that we do that this morning. Again, these are important questions. And I believe that the answers are found in our passage. And passages like this one, another great one is Colossians 3. So let's unpack this passage together. Point number one, spirit-filled employees must do their work. So again, you can put Christian workers, spirit-filled employees, Christian workers must do their work respectfully, if you fill in the blanks, wholeheartedly, sincerely, and as to the Lord. Christian workers, spirit-filled employees must do their work respectfully, wholeheartedly, sincerely, and as to the Lord. Let me read the verses one more time. Verses 5 to 8. Bond servants, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their masters and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Paul uses the same verb for obedience that he used with children and parents. And the verb to obey used denotes absolute obedience and compliance, unwavering compliance. Next, in verse 5, Paul uses, and I again highlight these, Paul uses three phrases that should modify our work. Here they are, and we're going to unpack these together. We should do our work, Christians, with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, and as you would Christ. As you would Christ. Everything else he says regarding spirit-filled employees in their work is basically related to these three phrases. So to begin, fear and trembling. Why should we obey our bosses with fear and trembling? Again, that may sound strange to us. Why should we obey our bosses with fear and trembling? Again, maybe you don't like your boss. Maybe you don't like your boss. But why should you still respect and seek to honor your boss? Here we see the issue of authority at play once again. This is helpful. Why is authority important? We're not a bunch of anarchists. We can't be as Christians, right? Authority is, is built into the Bible. If you're a Christian, you say, yeah, I understand authority because Jesus is my Lord, right? So we can't be a bunch of anarchists. Authority is all over the Bible. Authority is built into our lives. But why is it important? 
This is helpful for parents. Why does God place us in relationships where we are under authority? All authority comes from who? All authority comes from God. And all authority is meant to reflect who? This is good for bosses to remember. All authority is meant to reflect God. Therefore, all authority is meant to point us to God and to prepare us to respond appropriately to God. It's true. Hey, parents, listen. Why do you teach your children to listen and obey? Because ultimately you're preparing them to listen to obey to who? The Lord. Amen? There is a direct correlation between our response. Now listen to this. There's a direct correlation between our response to authority, namely the authority structures that God has put in place, and our response to God. By rejecting authority, we are in essence rejecting who? Rejecting God. Romans 13, 1 and 2 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from, except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by who? The authority structures that exist have been instituted by God, Paul says. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. I think that principle applies to the workplace. I really do. I think it applies to homes. To approach our employers, our bosses, with fear and trembling is another way of describing our responsibility to honor and respect those over us. We do this out of our allegiance to Christ as our king. Amen? Those who are committed to the king are committed to the word of the king. Now, I, I, I think, hopefully you would admit, probably a lot of us, maybe just some of us, need to repent today for how we've spoken about our employers behind their backs. We may need to repent today of our attitudes toward our bosses. Again, we must recognize that God has placed this person in a position of authority. Again, think of it this way. The, the only instance where disobedience toward one's employer is warranted is if the employer asks you to do something illegal or that goes against the clear teaching of the Bible, right? And in those cases, you better disobey because who are we called to obey first and foremost? Jesus Christ. Next, we should do our work with a sincere heart. We must do our work with sincerity and pure motives. We must start with a good and proper theology of work. We cannot, listen, as Christians, we cannot view our work as simply punching the clock or climbing up the corporate ladder or, or just doing whatever I have to do to get a paycheck. God is not honored by these flippant attitudes toward work. Work is a privilege, amen? It is a privilege and it is endowed with heavenly dignity. It is an opportunity to reflect God and to put his glory on display for others to see. So check your heart today. Check your heart and make sure that your motives for work are pleasing to the king. Now in verse 6, in relation to doing our work with a sincere heart, Paul says, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. Paul is warning against working only when the employer is watching so as to gain his or her favor, right? And so I think of that example in gym class. The gym teacher says, hey, everybody, you're not listening. Get down and give me 20 push-ups. And then the gym teacher's pacing back and forth. So all the kids get, okay, and they get down, and they start. And he's counting off one, one. I do them for you, but 
I'm not going to. Two, two. But then what ha- the gym teacher turns his back, maybe checks his phone, and what you're, and he's still counting. Three. And what are most of the kids doing? They're just like this. They're staying, they're resting. Because who's not watching? The teacher. But as soon as he turns around, what do they do? They're back into it, right? Do we work that way? Do we only do our work when we know the boss is watching? In the same vein, Paul writes, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will. As Christians, we must view our hard work and our submission to our employers as doing the very will of God. That is the motivator. We work this way because it's God's will. And we do this from the heart. We do it from the heart, meaning we do it wholeheartedly and ultimately from a new heart and new desires found in Jesus Christ. Now, the word translated as goodwill, doing the will of God, doing, uh, rendering service, doing your work with a goodwill, that word means zeal and eagerness. We are to work with zeal. We are to do our work eagerly. There should be joy and enthusiasm in our work as Christians. We must allow God's Spirit working through God's Word to correct, typically, I think, false and ungodly understandings of work as a monotonous, joy-killing enterprise. But instead, see it. See work as an opportunity to obey, honor, and serve our King and do good to others. Amen? In Thessalonians 3, I'm about to read that. Let me say one more thing here. Paul's teaching here on work precludes this attitude of carelessness and laziness in the workplace. Again, do you still work when your boss isn't around, when he's not watching? Or do you only do enough to get by? Do you waste countless hours on the computer perusing the internet, checking your email, playing games? Laziness in the workplace is condemned in God's Word. So 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul writes, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not what? He shall not eat. Insincere and lazy work does not honor who? It doesn't honor the king. And maybe you're still wondering, but what, what does Jesus have to do with my work? How does King Jesus play into our work? The key motivator for doing our work well as spirit-filled employees, as Christian workers, is repeated throughout our passage. It's easy to miss, but Paul basically says the, the same thing three times, but he says it differently. There's three phrases, okay? As you would Christ, so do your work as you would Christ, work as you would do it for Christ, verse 5, as bondservants of Christ, you're slaves of Jesus. That's your identity. That identity should come to the surface when you work. And then lastly, as to the Lord and not to men. Verse 7. I made this point at man camp, and I want to make it again. We need to change our audience. Who are we working for as Christians? Who's watching us constantly? Who sees everything that we do? The Lord. Who are you working for? And again, don't, don't tell me your employer or your company name. Who are you working for, Christian? Who are you working for? The Lord Jesus. As Christians, we must do our work for the Lord. When we view our work, first and foremost, as an opportunity to bring honor and glory to King Jesus, it changes everything. You go to work with a different attitude. I get to do this. This is part of my worship, right? 
I get to do the work that God has. There's a stewardship here, guys. God's given us gifts. He's given us talents. He's given us jobs. And with those jobs, man, we get to provide for our families. We get to make money to pour into God's church. We get to make money that we can serve other people in need. It's a wonderful thing to work, but primarily we're to do all of that as unto the Lord. We need to change our audience. Colossians 3, 23 and 24, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. When you go into work on Monday, do you have that mentality, I'm here to serve Christ? I'm here to serve Christ. I'm here to do my work as unto the Lord. I'm here to honor my king. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to be consistent and dependable and faithful. I'm going to put the fruit of the Spirit on display. I'm going to maintain godly integrity in the workplace. I'm going to speak truth. I'm going to do the right thing because I represent Jesus Christ. Again, we must do our work as unto the Lord. His glory, His honor, His fame, and His joy must be our primary motivator. Again, friends, we need to change our audience. This will bring both joy and I think a real sense of accountability to our work. It's, it's this mindset, I get to work for my king's glory. There's a great book by Tom Nelson. I gave it to a doctor in our church recently and it, and it encouraged him so much. And the subtitle of the book is Connecting Sunday Worship to Monday Work. I think a lot of times we compartmentalize work. It's something we do. It's a necessary evil. No, we're called to worship the Lord with our work. We're called to honor the Lord with our work. Do you see your job that way? I get to work for my king's glory. And I need to work hard because my king is watching. Who's watching us, friends? The Lord Jesus. I shared this story over the weekend. I'll share it again. So when I got back from Africa in 2010, before I met Haley, I... uh, I was looking at either starting uh, doctoral work or jumping into a church. And my heart has always been the local church. And so I'm looking to serve at a church. And in the meantime, I have to work. I mean, I can't just go home and not do anything. I I like to work and I wanted to work. And so uh, there was a a guy uh, that put me in contact with a business owner, Abner and Son, and I got to cut down trees. A lumberjack. It just sounded cool. I can wear flannel and grow up my beard, which can't happen. Yeah. I got struck in the face by lightning when I was a kid, and I can't grow a beard because of that. So I'm just kidding. <laughs> really? Yeah. I was like, well, I'm sorry to hear that. That explains a lot. Um, so I got, and I told Mr. Abner, I said, hey, listen, I- I'm going to be here for a short time. I- I'm called to be a pastor. Um, a- as soon as I find a pastoral job, uh, where I can serve in a church and preach the word, I'm going to go. That's fine. I'll, I'll take you as long as I have you. He had me for almost six months, about five, five and a half months. Man, the Lord was so good. So I've worked construction before. You know, when you work construction, I mean, you work with rough guys. It, it's just, it's part of it, right? And so I, I'd get there early and uh, we'd show up at the boss's house and we'd load up our gear and we'd, you know, get in different trucks. But I, I would gather the guys together and pray. Every morning, I'd pray over our group. I'd pray for the Lord's protection. I'd, I'd weave the gospel in my prayer. <laughs> but I'd always try to ride with somebody different. Why? 
Because for the next 30, 45 minutes, I got them in a truck. They're stuck. I have an audience, right? And so I got to share the gospel with all those men. One of them got really sick and ended up in the hospital. He wanted me to be there with him. I got to pray with him. One of the guys, surprisingly, started coming to church with me a little bit. Didn't last, but he came. I was thankful for that. Why do I share that story? Man, I worked hard. I showed up on time. I stayed late if needed. The men there saw a difference. I was able to put Christ on display, and that led to a lot of sweet gospel conversations. The Lord opened up incredible gospel opportunities because I did my work as unto the Lord. What are the implications of working this way? Respectfully towards your boss, wholeheartedly, sincerely, and as unto the Lord. Three things, I believe. Three things will happen. One, you'll shine for Jesus. You'll shine for Jesus. Aren't we called to shine for Jesus? I pray that for my boys on the way to Hudson every morning. Father, may Clark and Luke shine for Jesus. May they show other kids what it looks like to follow Jesus. And I hope that when you go to work in the morning, you're praying, Father, may I shine for your son Jesus. Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Number two, you get to share the gospel. You know, Peter in 1 Peter 3.15 says, but in your hearts, set apart the Christ, the Lord, as holy, but always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Man! So set apart, Christ the Lord is holy, right? But then be prepared. But when you do that, when you live with Christ as your Lord, people are going to ask questions. Why do you act differently? Why do you work differently? Why do you think differently? Why don't you laugh when we tell those jokes? Why do you walk away when we start gossiping? So when I was in Boston for three years, I worked at the Essex County Country Club. Everyone talked just like this. I was like, are y'all British? No, we were raised here. I'm like, why do y'all sound like you're from... It's crazy. Anyways, this was like one of the oldest clubs in America. Bill Murray, the actor, come play golf there sometimes. What was the guy that wrote that crazy book, um, Brown? Never mind, you don't know, it's fine. Uh, the owner of the Red Sox would play golf out there. He was a member. It was a crazy place to work, but I was in grad school, and I needed to make money. But man, I'll tell you what. I'd have my little, uh, who's ever waited tables? So you have like your little black book, right? And you can write down your orders, unless you have a photographic memory. Those people may be so mad. I never take down orders. I've seen you get them wrong, bro. I've seen it happen. So I'd write down orders, but on the right side, I had note cards, Bible verses that I was memorizing. And in between shifts, or if it was kind of a lull in the, in the night, I'd be over there, and, what are you looking at, Chris? I'm, I'm learning scripture. I'm, I'm memorizing the Bible. And then Sean, man, Sean was our bartender. He was a wild man. Oh, I love, my mom's met Sean. I loved Sean. I began to engage him with the gospel he would always ask me, why, why are you different? Man, I, I love Jesus. Can I tell you about him? Okay. So I took him to Panera Bread, and that led to a long Bible study. He started coming to church with me. Question after question would arise. Another guy who was kind of a jerk, he was just mean. He was always angry. He knew that I was going to seminary. Hey, what, what do you guys study in seminary? I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. <laughs> we talk about Jesus and the gospel. So you'll get, and listen, when you work this way, the, the way that Paul is saying, you'll get to share the gospel. And number three, when you work this way, the way that God shows us in his word to work, guess what? You get to obey. You get to obey and honor your king. 
When we work this way, we obey and honor the king. There's nothing greater than that. Amen? Let's look at our passage quickly in the larger context of Ephesians. Earlier in Ephesians 2, we learned that we are saved not by our works, but we're saved for works. Okay, so again, Paul, chapters 1, 2, and 3, is unpacking the gospel. Here's what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ, to save sinners. And then the second half, this is how we're to live out the gospel in the area of marriage, parenting, and in the workplace. But Paul talks about good works that God has prepared for us. And you know what? I believe that these good works also apply to the workplace. Amen? Lastly, we must do our work with a view toward our future hope. Our obedience as Christians, an obedience that springs from faith, is never in vain. It's never in vain. What does Paul say in verse 8? Verse 8, Whatever good anyone does, this he will receive from the Lord. Your work, and again, I know some of you guys, you've talked to me in my office, your work is hard, it's difficult, it's frustrating. But God will reward his children. You may feel underappreciated, you may feel underpaid, but the Lord sees, he knows. Do your work for his glory and with the promise of Revelation 22, verse 12 in view. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they've done. Be faithful. God will honor that. Amen? He will. Hey, you know, R. Kent Hughes, he's written a lot of great books. He has a lot to say about work, and he provides you with an assessment in one of his books, questions that we should ask about our work. And I, I've added about three or four more, so I want to ask some questions. I want us to take an assessment right now together. Number one, do I do my work for the glory of God? Think about that. Do you right now find that you're doing your work for the glory of God? Number two, can you say, do I honestly work hard? Do I honestly work hard? Number three, do I work with enthusiasm? Or is it like, oh, Monday's here, i got to go to work. The gospel should remove the drudgery from work because we get to work for our Lord. We get to work so as to do good to others. Next, do I work wholeheartedly? Do I work wholeheartedly? And then finally he says, do I do excellent work? Man, I've always wanted to apply that to the church. You know, we want to bring God our best, amen? But we want to do that in the workplace as well. Don't, don't just do what you have to do to get by. I mean, do excellent work. Because who's watching? We do our, our work before an audience of one, the Lord. And I've added a few more. Here's a few more. Do my employer and fellow employees know that I'm a follower of Jesus? The author I was thinking about is Dan Brown. He would come in sometimes, Dan Brown. The Da Vinci Code, yeah. I read that, that was trash. Anyways. It's just, it, it is trash. It's, it's entertaining. It's fiction. Do my employer and employees know that I'm a follower of Jesus? If not, would they be surprised to find this out based on my work ethic and attitude toward work? Oh, you're a Christian? I didn't know that. I'm surprised. Oh, talk about a heart killer. Do I look for opportunities to minister the gospel at work? Oh, Chris, I should really, you know, keep that to myself. Why? Are you kidding me? I am jealous of you. If you have a secular job, I am jealous of you. 
because a lot of you get to be with unbelievers every week. And I've worked in jobs like that, and I loved it because I knew I'm going to see these guys every day. Do you think about those people? Do you pray for them? Do you pray? This is the last question. Do you pray for your coworkers? Do you pray for your boss? Do you pray for those you work with? Let's end with employers. I want to end with bosses. What of employers? What if you're in a position of authority and you have employees under you? How does the gospel speak to your situation? This is our, our second and final point. Spirit-filled employers, Christian bosses, must serve their employees like Jesus and for his glory. Again, spirit-filled employers, right, Christian bosses, must serve their employees like Jesus and for his glory. Verse 9, masters do the same to them. So what Paul is calling Christian employees, Christian workers, to do to their bosses, Paul flips it and says, hey, you're to do the same thing to your employees, Christian bosses. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. Let me skip ahead to this. Two commands that we find in our passage. Do the same to them. The same things. This looks back to the attitude that is to characterize the behaviors that are to characterize Christian employees. These same attitudes must be embraced by spirit-filled employers or Christian bosses. All that they do is to be done for Christ. They are to treat their employees with respect and sincerity. They are to serve their employees. And then stop your threatening. (laughs) Stop your threatening. What does this mean and what is the remedy? The word for threatening means to declare that someone will cause someone harm, particularly if certain conditions aren't met. That's exploitation. That's a bullying attitude that asserts one's superior position or or throws throws around one's authoritative position to get things done. It's selfish and it's demeaning. It'd be like a boss saying, hey, listen, if you don't get this account, don't bother to come back. You're done here. This is not the way of Jesus. Amen? The remedy to this is the gospel and what the gospel produces in us. We see it in Ephesians 5.21 submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Spirit-filled bosses must serve their employees. They must consider their needs. They must pursue their good on the basis of their allegiance to their master, Jesus Christ. And this will inevitably put an end to threatening or harsh behavior. Lastly, Paul highlights the fact that the spirit-filled masters, right here, employers, themselves have a master, a shared master. This master, King Jesus, must inform how the undermaster or employer exercises his authority. The Christian boss looks to Jesus, his master. That's where he takes his cues. Amen? He looks to his boss. I, I want to be like Jesus. I want to I be a boss like Jesus. I, I want... Jesus to shine through in how I treat my employees, my, my workers. So, Christian employers, Christian bosses, where must we look to lead well? Christ and his example. What did Jesus say in Mark 10, 45? For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to, to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Andy, I want to pick on you, brother. I, I, I've known you for a couple years now, and I think you do this really well as a a boss, a Christian boss. I've seen you prioritize discipleship 
in the workplace. I've seen you be very generous with your employees. I've seen you care for your employees. But that shouldn't be extraordinary. That should be the norm in the church. Amen? We should look at Andy and say, yeah, I mean, obviously that's what he's supposed to do. But I've been encouraged, brother. So praise God for that. But that's what the gospel does. Amen? In sum, the gospel must be lived out. It must be seen in our work. Whatever it is, our work has inherent dignity and real God-honoring, gospel-proclaiming potential. When you work, do it well and do it for the glory of God. Seek to shine for Jesus in the workplace. You know, I spent a lot of time talking about this yesterday and the day before. What does God's work entail? Let me point to two things. I'm going to pray. So God's a worker. We see that in Genesis 1 and 2. God made us in his image to work. So we're to work like who? Who? Our work should reflect who? God. What kind of work does God do? Two things here. God's work serves others. What does he give Adam and Eve? He gives them a beautiful garden. He gives them fruit-bearing trees. What he made, he made to serve them. Amen? He gave them his presence. Secondly, God's work is worshipful. Everything God does in his work is for his glory. Right? Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above proclaim his handiwork. So what should our work entail? We should do our work to serve others because that's God's work. And we should do our work for God's glory. You know, the gospel is the good news. Woe unto me if I don't end with the gospel. The gospel changes everything. The gospel is the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. When you trust in Jesus, when you admit that you're a sinner in need of the Savior, Jesus Christ, what do you do? You change your master. You admit, I'm not, I'm not the master. I'm not the boss. I need Jesus to be my Lord and King. And when you do that, friends, it changes everything. It affects how you parent. It affects how you husband or how you wife. It affects how you work. Thankfully, we don't have to work in such a way or parent in such a way or do marriage in such a way to earn right standing with God. Instead, we trust in Jesus, in his perfect work on the cross, his death in our place. And when we do that, right, we are transformed to live differently, to do marriage differently, to do parenting differently, and to do work differently. All for whose glory? Not ours, but the King's Jesus Christ. That should be our work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are good and faithful. We thank you, God, that you are the perfect worker. And that in your work, when we look back at Genesis 1 and 2, we see that you did your work for your glory. You did your work to serve others. You work well with others. You collaborated, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together to bring creation about. I pray that, Father, we would copy your example that we would imitate you in how we do our work, that we would work differently because of you and because of the gospel. I pray, Father, that you would bring conviction by the Holy Spirit to those who view their work as a drudgery, who hate their work and their bosses. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would change their hearts and their mindset toward work, that, Father, as a church, we would be known as the best workers in East Texas, that we would not only work hard, but that we would work with integrity, 
that we'd maintain our Christian convictions in the workplace, that we would shine for Jesus, and that we would boldly tell the good news to others, calling many to turn from their sin, to get off the throne, to stop living their lives independently of Jesus, and to trust in Jesus for salvation and right relationship with God. Father, we thank you for our work. Again, I pray that we do it for your glory and the good of others. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.